0: Feels weird, feel so weird, in a city that looks so nice. Fake trees and I can't breathe, it's like the hills have Homesick and over it. I just
1: So this week, I invited two of our staff writers, Valentina Delicia and Hakim Bashara right. to come in and talk about the cancellation of the Collective Actions, Artist Interventions in a Time of Change exhibition at the Whitney Museum that was supposed to open on September 17th. It was curated by Faris Wabe, director of research resources at the Whitney. And the show was going to include artwork acquired for the museum's special collections through fundraisers for COVID-19 or Black Lives Matter related causes. And it would have showcased the work of almost 80 artists, spanning prints, photographs, posters, freely shared printable digital files for protest banners and other ephemera. So, Let's get to the discussion and figure out what happened exactly. So Valentina, can you get us up to speed about the situation at the Whitney?
2: Sure. So Monday night this week, Antoine Sargent, an art critic, and others started tweeting about a show at the Whitney Museum, and Antoine was actually one of the more prominent people sort of tweeting about this show and posting about it on social media. The exhibition was titled Collective Actions, Artists Interventions in a Time of Change, and it was scheduled to open in mid-September. It was curated by Farah Swaby, the Director of Research Resources at the Whitney, and it would have included artwork that was apparently acquired by the museum for its special collections, which meant the library collections in this case through fundraisers for COVID-19 or Black Lives Matter-related causes. So benefit sales, and the like. A lot of artists were also posting about this on social media because they felt that they had been exploited. They hadn't been contacted until this week to be apprised that they were even included in the show. And they also felt that the museum was acquiring their work some claimed below market value by acquiring it through these benefit sales that were meant to be for charitable causes so there was a lot of backlash on social media about this and In less than 24 hours after this uh, uproar on Twitter broke out, the Whitney announced that they were effectively discontinuing the exhibition. Our other staff writer, Hakeem Bashara, and I wrote a report about this together. And we initially started out writing the piece as, you know, just about the criticism that the exhibition and the curator and the Whitney were facing. And then it ended up being, by the time that we were finished with the report, we had to make some changes to reflect that the show had actually been canceled. So that all happened within the span of 24 hours. And I think we encountered a lot of really interesting issues that people brought up that we're also here to discuss on the podcast today.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it was even less than 24 hours, to be quite honest, in terms of how it sort of surfaced in this way. It's it's incredible how fast this happened. So, Hakim, what, what did you find in your research?
0: What was most striking to me is that Artists were notified by Ferris Wabe about the museum's intention to include their work in the exhibition only on Monday, which is less than a month than the opening date of the exhibition. And in that email, he thanked them for their uh, work and uh, expressed his appreciation and, uh, and promised them a lifetime past, an artist's lifetime past that artists who show at the Whitney get. So that seemed very odd. The museum waited that long to just inform artists about uh, their intention to include their work in an exhibition.
1: Yeah, the whole thing, I mean, the whole thing definitely seems a little odd in general. Now, what do we know about the curator of this exhibition? Because, I mean, it, just doing, uh, you know, some research on my own, it does seem like his experience was more in an archives and library. And I did wonder whether he was actually formally a curator at the Whitney. Do you have any idea, Hakeem?
0: Yes. He has a long career of archival work. He's been working at the Whitney for the past 10 years. In the uh, last six years, he's been the director of the research resources department at the museum. Before that, he managed the uh, museum's catalogs for four years. And in the past, he worked at various institutions, all in research positions, institutions like the Getty Institute in LA and Columbia University. It seems like I can't tell we don't we don't know this for sure, but it seems like he this project was his initiative because even when the show was cancelled, it was cancelled by a letter that he sent to the artist with an apology and a promise to do better next time.
1: It also, I mean, on the website when it was still active and the web page was up, it did list him as the curator. But I have to say it did feel like an archival show. And I know the conversation in the hyperallergic office has been uh, you know. Very active as it always is. And uh, my first reaction was, this must have been some type of archival show that's been being given a lot more attention, you know, and, and made to seem like an exhibition. But do we know exactly where it was going to be exhibited?
2: I don't think we know exactly where it was going to be exhibited, but I think it's worth pointing out to, in in Ferris's apology to the artist, he described the Whitney Special Collections, which would have been, or which was the collection that acquired these works as, quote, an area that houses artists' books, zines, posters, prints, and objects that document how artists distribute published materials as a form of practice, both physically and online and are collected as the materials are launched and circulated. So I think that tells us a lot about the context in which the works were acquired in terms of, you know, the Whitney has been building this collection for some time and it's not unprecedented for them. And I think what really upset some people was, well, first of all, of course, the artists that were included in this now canceled show, primarily artists of color, and the Whitney has been making statements in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, and some saw a dissonance between those statements of solidarity and what they perceived as a the exploitation of either purchasing these works for very low prices because they were in benefit sales, or in some cases downloading them from the internet when it was when they were works that were um, freely available and kind of exploiting the practices rather than supporting Black artists and artists of color at a time when, as we know, artists are really struggling.
1: That's a really good point. I, You know, it's 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 definitely not an easy issue. I, I mean, I have to say, and I'd love to hear both of your opinions too, I have to say it's it seems like a, a no-brainer that they should have probably reached out to the artists and figure out how their work was exhibited, or at least, you know, particularly at such a sensitive time when the work is still New. I mean, it sounds like the Whitney's trying to develop some kind of rapid response way of dealing with material that is that is very current. But this definitely seems like a major misstep, and I hope they figure it out. Now, Hakeem Valentina, what are your thoughts on this?
0: I personally think that if the museum wanted to support these causes that are related to the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests, they would have been. They would have done better if they directly donated to those charities rather than doing this. I understand it's complex. It's an archival show. And um, I assume, I believe they had only good intentions in doing this project. But this was a very warped way of doing it. And it's a cautionary cautionary tale to other museums who are planning those rapid rapid response uh, shows to the pandemic and the protests.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, the whole thing about good intentions, you know, what, what do they say about the road to hell and good yeah. intentions? Uh, a little bit of that. Valentina, thoughts?
2: Yeah, I kind of fall on the same side as Hakim does. I think that the way that it was done was very clumsy. Hakim and I were actually just chatting earlier about how some museums have been collecting protest materials in the wake of demonstrations this year in order to kind of um, collect materials from history and kind of real time. And there were curators from the Smithsonian Museums a couple months ago who attended the protests and approached the protesters and asked them whether they could, you know, take away some of their signs for the museum collections. This is something I read about. And I think that's just so different from what the Whitney did, which was kind of go behind the artist's backs in a way. And I think I think that's how the artists felt that there was something of like, we did this behind your back and then we emailed you this note that really kind of reads like, congratulations, we've selected you for this show. Here's a pass that allows you to get into the museum for free. So there's a lot of, there's a confluence of like upsetting optics, I think. There's a lack of compensation. There's a lack of involving the artists in the process of the acquisition and in the process of the exhibition. And there is also this feeling that, yeah, I mean, something you said, Harag, that really stuck with me, this idea of like too fast. And like, we're trying to do this so quickly when, of course, COVID-19 is still going on. And of course, people are still dying at the hands of police. And so there's a sense that the it, it almost feels to me like the museum was so in a hurry to appear timely and appear politically correct that they did that by sacrificing the ethics of what it would be to put up a show like this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think it also, you know, in the case of the Whitney museum, which we've uh, written about before, they did board up the museum in the midst of the pandemic, particularly when there were increasing protests in June. So, you know, it does make you wonder a little bit, you know, how much of this is signaling this type of acceptance and, and uh, encompassing? And I mean, I think this is the same place we were at around the Warren Kander's controversy around the tear gas biennial in the same way that, you know, what is this institution? And should we be reforming it in this incremental way rather than much more drastic? Like, you know, doing shows in the traditional way in terms of an institution, who is that actually serving? Who is actually helping? And I also don't like the idea that everything in the arts gets reduced only to money as well you know, as well as like the idea that, that people who are doing these different things, I, I do wonder, it's like, how can we have this conversation that's much more uh, about the work, but also understanding that there's a bigger system that needs to be interrogated as part of this. So I wonder whether you wanted to bring up one of the comments we received today, just as a starting point, you know, for a bigger conversation about this, Valentina.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there was a comment on our article, which was published yesterday. And I'm just going to read parts of it because I think it was really interesting. And it was published by somebody who just used a username, not their full name. I'm going to just read it out now. They said, I don't think much was accomplished by frightening the Whitney into withdrawing the show. The Whitney, an au bourgeois institution, has almost certainly not changed. And indeed, its basic purposes and theories about what it's doing, certainly remain authoritarian and propertarian. Whereas the activists whose material they acquired may have purposes very much at odds with the Whitney's it might have been more useful to use the exhibition to invite the artists and activists to visit the museum and discuss and explain the problems involved with it and maybe to pay them reasonably. The event could have been distributed digitally at little cost. And so I think what this user is getting at and this reader is getting at, which I think is really interesting, is was it really a good outcome that the exhibition was canceled? And I think it's a fair point. And I think it opens up a whole nother side of this conversation, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think people are also wondering what role museums should have and whether they should have a big role you know, in terms of some of these different things, because institutionally, and I know in past conversations with Ariella Azoulay and and other thinkers on this topic, people are really wondering whether these institutions should survive. And I don't mean that their objects should be dispersed and everything should happen, but the way they're structured and organized might reflect these exact systemic racism and systemic issues that the protests are about. And I want to point out for people who may be interested, this week we published an op-ed piece by Betsy Bradley, who's the director of the Mississippi Museum of Art. And, you know, what was interesting about that is I think she was being very frank about the fact that what if... You know, museums have sort of, you know, run out of their purpose in the way that sort of like they they're sort of organized and how they deal with things today. And I want to read a little quote from this article just to kind of get a sense of what this is. So she quotes a, a book, "Art as Therapy," and one of the authors, and both of the authors, I should say, suggested since the beginning of the 20th century, our relationship with art has been weakened by a profound institutional reluctance to address the question of what. Art Art is for. So she writes The authors propose a radical reshifting of curatorial training and museum structures to prioritize the healing offered by artworks that invite us to remember, love, mourn, and grow. Indeed, our training and structures may need to be altered to make necessary change happen. Perhaps our organizational charts should be framed not by academic discipline, but by function and impact. Perhaps we should train our professionals, even our curators, not only in art historical research, but also in the facilitation of personal responses to art. In other words, perhaps all museum employees should take responsibility for the impact on the visitor of the objects we choose to display. And for those who are interested, the piece by Betsy Bradley is titled, A Museum Director Asks, What If Art Museums Can't Measure Up to the Present Moment? Thoughts on that?
0: I'd like to add another point apropos the writing of Ariel Azulay, who writes a lot about archives and their role. Archives are not only a place where things are preserved. They are also, sadly, a place where things die and when things are frozen. And and this um, touches touches on the issue of permission here that um, I I want to propose a a very simple and naive question. What if I don't want my work to be shown at the Whitney? What if my work is subversive, political, anti-institutional, and I don't want it to be co-opted and institutionalized at a museum?
2: Especially after
0: all the controversies that that plagued uh, the Whitney in the last year.
2: Yeah, I actually think that's a really good point, Hakeem, and some of the artists that we interviewed for a piece, you know, they brought this up. There was one artist in particular, Fields Harrington, whose work was acquired for the show, not via a benefit sale, but via an open call launched by Printed Matter for free online protest material. So Printed Matter had launched an open call asking for artists to provide posters, ephemera, other anti-racist material that people would then, if selected, it would appear on their website and people would be able to download a digital file online and use it as they wished. And so this artist, Fields Harrington, did that. He created a poster that was made available on Printed Matter's website. And you You know, when I asked him about this, he said, well, yeah, I made that as a downloadable file so that people could download this poster that said, abolish the fucking cops, and not so that the Whitney Museum could acquire it and frame it in a vitrine. And he actually said, if I had had my way, I and, you know, if I had had a choice of how to exhibit this at the Whitney, I would have asked that they print it out on newsprint so that visitors could take away a poster that says abolish the police. So there is this interesting question of like, yeah, there are some artists that do think their work is radical and they don't want it to be decontextualized or co-opted. And they certainly don't want it to happen without their permission and without their input.
1: Yeah, I think this is a much bigger topic around that exactly. I I did like how he uh, explained, you know, what he would have probably asked for, because I think that's also an issue is, I think, you know, obviously we've been talking about museums not being neutral for quite a while, but I think that perception still persists. And people think that when things are placed in a museum, you know, they're somehow understood better by a wider range of people. But the reality is part of the problems we have are exactly the issue around museums. And I mean, to bring up Arielle Azoulay again, one of the things she talks about is the fact that we talk about encyclopedic museums as if they were inevitable, but the reality is they needed to be created because there was so much loot in terms of colonialism and objects and other artifacts that were being brought back and studied and acquired and looted and all these types of things. So the museum itself then becomes a repository for that history as well without scrutinizing it in quite the way it needs to. And I will bring up that one of my concerns in the recent debates around monuments is that people's reaction seems to be, I should say a lot of people's reactions around that, seems to be, let's put them in museums. As if museums is where we put Everything that we don't want in public, or somehow they're going to resolve it. And of course, no one ever says. And in order to do that, let's raise funding of museums, you know, <laughs> or something else to like make it a little more um, practical. So I also hate this idea that museums is where we put things that we don't want to deal with, right? And so, and and I think, unfortunately, in the case of the Whitney Museum. It almost feels like a way to really, you know, create a little convenient space where we can go and feel like this institution we're supporting is, you know, doing the right thing. But the reality is the right thing may have been like, well, we should bring these people into the space and then have them figure out how they should be shown here. Have them figure out whether this is the right context. And it reminds me of Michael Rakowitz uh, with the last Whitney Biennial actually saying that part of the reason he didn't want to show his work is he didn't feel like it was the right context for his work mm-hmm. at that point, particularly around this, uh, you know, this person, Canders, the vice chair at the time of the Whitney Museum Board. He didn't feel like it was the right place to put his artwork because of the circumstances weren't appropriate, or the environment wasn't appropriate, and he spoke about it in a way that somebody might talk about, you know, having the proper conditions, environmental conditions in a gallery, or the proper, you know, informatics related to it. So I think that is going to be a new level of uh, maybe sensitivity the art community is going to have to understand because for so long, only certain types of knowledge have been valued. You know, the art historical research, this idea that somehow research is an end of itself is actually kind of, frankly, I'm going to say demented uh, because I don't think that research by itself should, should really be the be all and end all because, you know, hey, imperialism was built on research. A lot of things are built on research and it doesn't necessarily always mean that the framework that researchers are using is good for a long-term conversation.
2: Yeah, a lot of things to talk about.
1: So much, so much. But I'm glad we yeah. can have a little bit of insight from just our own conversation. So anything you want to add, Hakim Valentina?
0: I would just say it became too easy to criticize museums, uh, especially lately when they're really being held accountable for tone deaf and uh, generally aloof and disconnected uh, from reality initiatives. And I'm begging museums, please make it harder on us to criticize you in the future.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. Valentina, any I thoughts?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one last thing I guess I wanted to add, and, and I appreciate the point you made, Harag, about not everything being about the market. Certainly it does seem like we're in a very market-centric art world conversation sometimes, but I I was thinking that what the Whitney did of buying something, quote unquote, behind one's back, really what they did was enter an open market, acquire something, and then choose to exhibit it as something that was their property. And that's what's happening in the art market all the time, right? It's The secondary market auctions allow anybody, even if their views or ethics don't align with the artist or the work in question, to acquire an object and to then Presented as they wish, and somebody might buy a very very radical piece of art at a gallery or at an auction house, and then choose to exhibit it in their million dollar country home, um, surrounded by collectors who are Trump supporters, and you know. And so there's this way in which what the Whitney did is already happening in so many other contexts that we don't talk about. But like Hakeem said, museums, well, first of all, they're public, so they're serving a very different mission than private collectors, but there is a way in which it would be nice if they didn't make it so easy for us to criticize them. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. But I will point out that a lot of these museums don't consider themselves public because they don't actually get a lot of public funds but in the case of the Whitney as we reported they received millions of dollars in PPP loans so I do think it is a little harder to uh, have the museums claim that they don't you know or don't survive on the support of the public and of course we've realized that the boards at museums are actually um not what they say they are in many ways. So I will also say as much as as museums have been doing a better job in some ways, one way they are not doing a better job is being more transparent about their organizations, their decision-making, and the roles that people like on acquisition committees, on boards actually have. I mean, the reality is we don't have an organizational chart of the Whitney Museum. And I think an institution like that, we should figure out how they're organized. And you know what? That's what we try to do every day. So thank you, Valentina and Hakeem, for continuing to stay on top of the story and for giving us a little bit of insight. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ron. And outside the people stare, it makes me wanna hide. Just wish that you were here, so now I'm checking flights. Rush home to be alone with you in paradise.
1: The music for this episode is Champagne by Tyler James Bellinger see you I'm Hrugvart Bartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic thanks for listening and stay safe
0: you know I struggle when I'm in LA would it be crazy if I got on a plane to you so in the morning I can feel okay we can stay in bed and drink champagne oh.